Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. And welcome to another release from our audio archive series. Donald Rumbelow is a former City of London police officer, crime historian, and the author of numerous crime books, including the complete Jack the Ripper, Scotland Yard Investigates with co-author Stuart Evans, and Houndstitch Murders. The Houndstitch Murders in the Siege of Sydney Street was the topic of his talk at the October 1999 meeting of the Cloak and Dagger Club. And so let's venture inside and have a listen to Donald Rumbelow on the Siege of Sydney Street. Siege of Sydney Street, the Houndstitch Murders and the Siege of Sydney Street. I went to explanation, I first got into, into this a long, I'll have to keep changing these reference glasses. Um, a long, long time ago, when I was a... Young PC back in the 60s, and very interested in history. And at the top of uh, Snow Hill Police Station, in a very dusty room, with sort of remnants of what had once been um, sort of um, a crime museum. And I happened to be going up the stairs one day, and outside I got all these cardboard boxes, broken, dusty, papers, photographs, everything was bundled into these boxes. And I was told that they related to. Siege of Sydney Street. I knew nothing about the Siege of Sydney Street. And um, they were all going in the incinerator. So I thought it was wrong if this was such a famous case that these papers uh, should, you know, should be thrown away. At the time they were throwing away all sorts of other documents. Uh, letters to the governor of Newgate Jail, all of this stuff going back into the 19th century. And so I decided to help myself to these documents and take them home. Which I did. Living in Brixton at the time, we used to ride a bike back and forth. So I got a rucksack, stuffed these things in my locker, and over a period of time I took all these documents and photographs back and stored them at home. Um, came a point when, some years later, I was running the newly created Force Museum, and uh, I found in some boxes a couple of burnt-out guns, a Mauser, a Drays, which came from the, the house in Sydney Street. And I wanted to an account of what had actually happened in exchange buildings the night of the murders. And every book I looked at gave a different version of what had happened. And so I thought, well, this shouldn't be too difficult to find out what had actually happened because I got the original witness statements, I got the uh, ballistic reports, I got the actual guns themselves, I'd even got the actual bullets taken from the bodies with all the relevant papers. And so I sat down and sort of gradually started to piece these things, to, to uh, put this thing together. And there came a point of realization when comparing these documents to the printed accounts, that the printed accounts were horribly wrong. And the reason they were horribly wrong, and why the prosecution was wrong uh, at the subsequent trial, was that all the key elements had actually been filtered out through the documents as they had gone from the original spec- uh, uh, witnesses and participants and they'd been sifted. And so by the time the prosecuting counsel got them, they'd been through numerous police hands and key what struck senior officers and others as irrelevances had actually been struck out to tidy up the case and get the papers all jumped neat and tidy for prosecution. And in doing that, they'd actually let the real murderer go. And so this is what eventually led me to do a book and subsequently a big revision of it some years later, 
uh, about the, the, the story of the siege of Sydney Street and the kill, that, what was called the Houndsditch Murders. And then the background to this, this particular story. As far as I'm concerned, now he almost changed glasses again. Um, the story actually begins not on the 3rd of January 1911, which is the date of the siege. It actually begins back in, uh, in, in 1909, some two years before that, again in January. It begins in North London, in Tottenham. The, in London, in 1909, some two million Londoners were described as poor, or very poor. There's been a lot of immigrants coming into the East End, escaping from the pogroms in Tsarist Russia and in Eastern Europe. And a lot of these immigrants have been pushed out to the suburbs. To the suburbs. And in Tottenham, there was, there was a very large immigrant community. And a lot of them were employed at Schnurman's Rubber Factory, uh, which, is at the, which was at the corner of Tottenham uh, High Road. Now, the wages bill for the company was £80 a week. And it was collected every Saturday morning by uh, the wages clerk. It was driven to the bank in the uh, chauffeur group, chauffeur-driven car. The wages were collected and taken back. And on this particular morning, 23rd of January 1911, the wages car pulled up outside the rubber factory entrance. Uh, the driver and the wages car noticed two men standing uh, by the gateway. These two men were, uh, were two lets from the Baltic state of Latvia. One was named Paul Heffield, and the other we know simply as Jacob. Both men are saying in their twenties. Both at this point have got guns in their pockets and an incredible amount of ammunition that they were carrying. And they were waiting to rob the wages car. Now, as uh, the wages car, he was only 17. Uh, his name was Albert Keyworth. He, he, he looked, he was a bit suspicious. Then he recognized uh, Heffel as somebody who'd actually been working in the factory some time before. Incredibly, nobody, uh, this, uh, 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 when he was worked there, didn't, didn't, knew, knew, knew his real name. Apparently, when he was employed, he just refused to give it. Um, so, uh, Patrick, the, the, the employer, uh, the, the factory manager, because of, because of the guy's size, just put him down on the timesheets as elephant. <laughs> <laughs> and that was how he was registered on the wages slip and, uh, uh, and in the factory. Uh, as far as the company was concerned, they were completely indifferent as to what they called him, so long as he did the work. Now, Keyworth, uh, the wage department, almost reached the entrance when suddenly Jacob grabbed him from behind, threw an arm around his neck, and made a snatch at the wages man. The boy shouted, and the chauffeur, seeing and hearing what had happened, jumped out of his car and ran towards uh, J Jacob but was uh, knocked off balance uh, by the force of the collision and thrown into the, uh, into, the road, uh, into the road. And as he sprawled there on the roadway, he looked up and suddenly realized that both men, that not only had they got the wages bang, but both of them are now pulling out guns. And Heffel began firing at the chauffeur as he lay sprawled on the, on, on the road. <coughs> and the chauffeur rolled over and over and over to, to escape the firing. And uh, amazingly, the succession of shots went through his clothing, cut through his vest, uh, but none of them uh, wound, wound, wounded him. Now, directly opposite the rubber factory entrance was Tottenham Police Station. 
and uh, some, some of the policemen saw, heard, 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 heard the shot. I mean, one of, one of them was PC Bond, who was shaving and looked out of the window. And what I liked is his course of action, obviously much more agile, I think, than most policemen. He grabbed a truncheon, the choking is safe all over his face, grabbed a truncheon, leapt through a window, down into the station yard, and then scrambled over a wall to get into the action. Uh, Constable Tyler, Constables Tyler and Newman ran out into the street, just as a passing stoker, a burly man called George Smith, brought Jacob down with a flying tackle. Heffel, the elephant, ran over to the two men as they were rolling on the ground and strangled them both, and then fired four shots into Smith's head. Two shots cut his scalp, one through his, went through his cap, and one just nicked him slightly in the neck. I mean, that's the description of the of his act. And uh, then picking up the wages bank, the two men started running. They had no getaway car, no transport, they're on foot. And they start running through this maze of little terrace, side streets and terrace houses, they're heading down towards Tottenham Marshes. Now, people standing in the, in the street and the gateways, they, they start joining in. They, they start joining in. One old lady standing begutless by her garden gate and throws potatoes at them. <laughs> um, more help was coming from the police station. Remember, sort of running down the street, uh, down, down down the streets after them. Uh, other policemen were getting on bicycles. But all this time, the two gunmen turned around and they're firing their guns at the pursuers. And at one point, the two leading policemen, Tyler and Newman, get within 10 yards of the two gunmen before they have to duck away and back off as the gunmen turn and open fire on them. Now, they hadn't been gone very far down these side streets when suddenly the factory car turns up, driven by the chauffeur Wilson. And it slows down to a walking pace. And uh, so one of the... Uh, Newman gets on in, into the car and Tyler's sort of running alongside the, side the car. And just outside the mission hall, uh, one of the gunmen stops to, to reload his gun. So the chauffeur, thinking that both men's guns are empty, shouts, guns are empty, and decides to drive the two men down. Uh, quickly realises a mistake when suddenly both men knelt down in the road, pointed their pistols at the car and, and opened fire. Uh, they blasted the car, brought it to, a, uh, to, a, to an absolute grinding halt. The chauffeur, um, uh, the Newman and uh, the chauffeur were both wounded, uh, but as, uh, as the firing opened, as the firing began, a small boy ran across the road uh, behind, uh, from, behind, from behind the car. And uh, he was hit with a slanting shot through the body. Fell, picked up, somebody picked him up, threw him on a bicycle and rode to the hospital. Uh, but he was, the boy was already dead. And uh, 50 years later, 50 years later, his mother, uh, when she died, she was buried uh, with the shoes that he was wearing on that day. Now, policemen are sent back to the station to get guns. Now, they get back to the station, but they were locked in a cupboard and they'd never been used, they'd never been wanted, nobody knew where the key was. So they had to break open the cupboard to, to, to actually sort of get at, uh, uh, to, to get at the guns, put them in their pockets, get bikes out on foot and start running getting back into the chase. Now, by this time, the, the gunmen were converging on the railway footbridge that led onto Tottenham Marshes. And Tyler and the other policemen, close behind them, decided to head them off. There was a sort of council depot and a, and a, and a wall around the depot. And so cutting across the waste ground, they ran around the wall using this as cover. And when they broke cover, 
Behind the brakes, they were just 20 yards behind the two gunmen. Tyler was the leading policeman, and he called out, come on, give up, come on, give in, the game's up. And Heffeld turned and fired. And the shot went through uh, new, um, Tyler's neck, dropping him to the ground. He was uh, still alive, but rapidly losing consciousness. He was picked up, taken into a knife nearby house, laid on the kitchen floor, and died moments later. Then one of this is the point I like. The divisional inspector who was in the chase asked the council depot manager to telephone police for headquarters and ask for reinforcements, while he returned to the station for his horse. <laughs> <laughs> and policemen were told to converge on Tottenham Marshes.
quite truthfully, says, I don't know how to drive. I've never driven anything in my life. So Jacob points, sticks the gun as here into the tra conductor's head and says, drive the tram. And amazingly, in such a short space of time, the conductor does. <laughs> I think there's something, perhaps, perhaps there's a lesson here for sort of driving schools, you know. So <laughs> you need only one lesson with us. <laughs> um, anyway, so Jacob keeps the gun, gun to the conductor's head, while Hefel keeps up, uh, up a fire from the back. Now, they think they're outstripping the pursuers, but at this point, comes trotting up behind them, a horse-drawn advertising cart uh, containing all the advertisements, buckets of paste, and it's been commandeered by a policeman. And uh, Heffold turns around, and as the, 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 this wagon gets near, blasts the poor horse, who drops down dead, the cart collapses, the pan occupants are thrown into the roadway, and all these cans of paste go over them. They're actually, I mean, it's like Keystone Cross. They're actually covered in, 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 in paste. Uh, they then carry on a little bit, then they start coming up to a bend, and uh, the tram driver, uh, the conductor says, I think there's a police station round, round the corner. Might be a good place for, you to, for, you, for you to get off. It's at this point that the, elder, the, the woman and child have somehow scrambled off during this journey, but the elderly passenger is still on board. He, he's become more and more agitated, and at this point decides to throw himself at Jacob and try to get his gun. Jacob is too quick for him, turns fast, shoots him in the neck. And so the two gunmen abandon the tram and they next commandeer a horse-drawn milk cart. They shoot the milkman as well, uh, wound him, gallop off with it, but then turning a corner they overturn the milk cart, so they have to get out of that. Out of that. So they then commandeer a horse-drawn greengrocer's van, which they didn't know. They thought it was, it was a bit slow. What they didn't know is it got the drag and the brake on, and they keep flogging the poor horse, and eventually drops from sheer exhaustion. He just can't go any further. So they again abandon the, 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 uh, the vehicle, and the pursuers are still behind them. Everybody's still behind them. So they then run along the Ching Brook. And um, what they don't realise is that the, the footpath gets tapers down until eventually, by the railway bridge here, it completely disappears. And at this point, Heffeld, the heavier of the city man, says, I can't go any, you know, I can't go any further. He says to Jacob, you get, out, get over the fence, I, 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 can't go, I can't go any further. And uh, as the pursuers run up, Jacob gets over the fence and starts running away. Heffeld is determined not to be saved otherwise, and he shouts to Jacob to show, save himself, and then turns the gun on his gun on himself, <coughs> and putting it in his head, fires it into his brain. Well, he thought he was going to fire it into his brain. <laughs> Instead, the bullet goes in about half an inch above the eye, straight through and out the other side, and he's still alive. <laughs> and um, before he could fire again, the gun's ripped from his fingers, and Heffold is taken prisoner. Jacob is taken, carries on running across some fields, and he's finally trapped in a small cottage called Oak Cottage, which was hastily surrounded. And uh, there's a hilarious sequence of events with 
policemen sort of trying to find far borrow ladders and sort of have, get get in get inside the ha- inside the house. And uh, one of these ca- one of these policemen is Constable Eagles, who's de- asked somebody to lend him a gun. He's desperate to have a pop at this gunman. And uh, so the policeman says Eagles didn't care so much for his own safety as I did for mine. So he gave Eagles the gun. And uh, Eagles goes upstairs, peers through the uh, crack in the door, and you can see Jacob sort of running around. Apparently, the description of him is like a black crow, filthy, dirty, bloodstained. And uh, Eagles shoulder charges the door, bursts it open, and the two men fire. Eagles fires at Jacob and misses him completely. Uh, Jacob fires the gun into his own head. There's the bed with, with his gun, uh, or with his gun lying lying on lying on the bed. But again, he's still alive. Um, only for a few minutes, however. And the policemen drag him outside, downstairs, into the yard, and dump him on his back. And the thing that everybody remembered most about it was the appalling, horrible grin on his face just before he died. And Eagle said that if the police hadn't been there. The crowd reaction was such that he was convinced that they would actually pour paraffin over him and set him alight. Heffeld, the chase had lasted more than two hours and covered a distance of six miles. These are these are some of the pictures. Uh, the the, the, the central photographs. The bottom one is that that is that that is, that is Constable uh, Tyler, and the others are, um, are some of the wounded. It had been, uh, say, say, lasted two hours. Covered six miles. Heffeld and Jacob had fired all together a total of over 400 uh, over 400 shots. <coughs> two people had been killed and 21 others and 20, uh, 21 others wounded. Seven of them policemen. Uh, some of those who were wounded, uh, 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 the wounds were in a critical condition. Heffeld uh, was in prison, he li- uh, was in hospital, he lived for almost a third of three weeks. And his, only, his last recorded were, words were, my mother is in Riga. Now, Riga is the clue to this story. Riga is in the Baltic state of Latvia. And in the Baltic states, revolution and nationalism were, were synonymous. <coughs> There was a lot of uh, unrest in the Russian Empire uh, from the early 1880s onwards. After the death of the Tsar Alexander III, there were pogroms against the Jews. In a period of just over a year, some quarter of a million Jews uh, fled uh, the Russian Empire. And the Tsar's successor, Tsar's successor's attitude to the Jews was that he proposed killing a third converting a third, and expelling a third. The pogroms were carried out not only against Jews, but they were carried out against non-Jews, uh, Jews and non-Jews alike. Now, in Latvia, in 1905, you had this attempted revolution, as you do throughout the Tsarist Empire. And 1905 is the revolution that fails. It's often seen as the dress rehearsal for the more successful Russian Revolution of 1917. And in Latvia, in 1905, 14,000 uh, people were killed, 1,000 were hanged, and 7,000 were imprisoned. Now, one of these 
person caught up in that revolution. Is this man, Jacob Peters. He's going to be a key, this is a, a police photograph after his arrest. And he is going to be a key as a key figure in our story. And in 1905 in Latvia, he'd been an, he was an army agitator in, 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 in and in the dockyard. He was also in prison, in prison uh, 18, for a period of 18 months. In prison, he was tortured by the Tsar of Sakrana, he had his fingernails torn out. In his um, uh, account he gave so, uh, many years later, a fellow prisoner with him not only had his fingernails torn out, but his eardrums perforated and his genitals. And amazingly, with the brutality that was going on in the prison, Jacob Peters led a prison protest. Unusual protest. He made demands that he and other prisoners, when they were transferred to other prisons, should be heavily manacled, chained, and handcuffed. Strange thing. The reason they made the protest was that the Akrana on these prison transfers were shooting the prisoners and saying they tried to escape. Being manacled, handcuffed and chained was the prisoners' defence against these shootings. After 18 months in prison, he was released, but he knew that he was going to be taken again, so he escaped to England. Another figure in our story is this man, Jürgen Dubov. He too was caught up in that 1905 revolution. And for the rest, he'd been flogged by the Cossacks. And for the rest of his life, he had the, scar Cossack, the scars of the Cossack whips on his back. Now, a lot of the, these men, these, these and others like them, they came here to London, they came and they settled here in the East End. And because of the Jew, big influx of Jews after the pogroms, there's a tremendous amount of anti-Jewish feeling in the East End. You've got reflections of this in the, in, in the Ripper case. An Englishman couldn't have done the murders. It had to have been done by a Jew. And uh, somebody said that there was a tremendous amount of hostility for these immigrants. And somebody said, you've only got to look in the people's eyes to see an expression there which is half indicative of pogrom. And a pogrom they went on to say in Brick Lane would be far more terrible than a pogrom in uh, the, the Baltic states. In the shots in the East End this time, tremendous amount of anti-Zarist literature. It, it was very widespread, widely circulated. Now, in 1907, you have the Fifth Socialist Congress here in London, and it's held at the Brotherhood Chapel of the New North Road in, in, in London, and it's worth bearing in mind just how many of those leading figures, particularly of the Russian Revolution, uh, the 1917 Russian Revolution, actually lived and worked at different times here in London. Lenin himself regularly lectured in Whitechapel, and he'd gone, I do an East End walk on Sunday afternoons, and it's often a point of amusement to point out that Lenin also regularly guided in Whitechapel guided visitors in Whitechapel. Apparently he liked doing this because he could better point up the contrast with the rich and fashionable so, uh, West End of London. So in 1907 you have the Fifth Socialist Congress here. And, uh, sorry? Oh, uh, Fifth Socialist Congress here in London. And there are 260 delegates. And one of the delegation is the Bolshevik delegation. And they meet in Fulham Road, opposite, opposite the London Hospital. In 1907, present, 
here in Whitechapel. You know it is Lenin, Maxim Gorky, the writer, Trotsky, Boroshilov, the future field marshal, and a young delegate called Joseph Stalin. They're all here in Whitechapel in 1907. And for those of you who know it, Tower House, down by the London Hospital, that was where Stalin was lodged in 1907. Now, the Bolsheviks, uh, other, other parties were abandoning what was called expropriation. Expropriation is revolutionary word speak. One of the meanings is armed robbery. And uh, Lenin, in common with other revolutionary leaders at the time, was a great believer in expropriations. This was a way of getting money to live. It was a way of subsidizing newspapers, <coughs> gun running, all these re re revolutionary activities. Now, guns, amazingly, were very, very easy to obtain. Um, in 1905, a Russian coming through customs was stopped by the customs officers because he was bringing in with him 47 pistols and 5,000 rounds of ammunition. No problem, none of it was confiscated and he was allowed to bring it into the country uh, 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 which he did. And so all of these revolutionaries, uh, uh, they all had, they were all in possession of guns. And one of them who never went out without went out went with, never went out without his Browning revolver showed the same spirit as Heffeld had done when he shot himself at Chingbrook. Prison is uh, prison isn't worth living for. Six bullets for the sleuth hounds and the seventh for me. Now, special Brown's inquiries digging into this background. The leader of the Tottenham Rail outrage was this man, Joseph Salmich, Christian Salmich. He also used a, a, another name. They all used lots of names, two, three, four names. Christian Salmich was Salmich, but he also, his other name was Jacob Fogel. And he'd been a professional rev revolutionary since 1905. And from 1905 to 1907, he'd organized the resistance fighters in Latvia, uh, and, in, uh, and they, who and engaged the government forces in a savage guerrilla warfare. Burnings, as far as, far as the government, was, the government uh, squads, burnings, firing squads and torture was quite commonplace. In 1905, two of Salnish's men were held in Riga prison. Salnish determined, determined to get them out. And with 52 men, party members, armed to the teeth, they scaled the prison walls, the Riga prison, and got out the their two colleagues. And among those partners, the, the 52 men may have been two other figures that figure in this uh, uh, story: Peter Piakow, or Peter Piakow, better known as Peter the Peter, and Fritz Vars. Salmish then uh, subsequently came to England to organize supplies of weapons and propaganda. And, as I say, he's believed to be the mastermind behind the Tottenham outrage. This is Fritz Vars. I was very lucky to meet somebody who got the, until I was published it, no, nobody knew, had any idea of what Fritz Vars looked like. But this is Fritz Vars. Um, and he was a legendary figure. And in October in 1905, he had been arrested for several crimes, including murder. He'd gone out of prison, he got away, 
And in January 1906, he was again taken prisoner in a swoop. And he was taken to the secret police offices in Riga, where the overcrowding was so great that Zvars was detained, in a, held in a corridor, chained in a corridor, along with other prisoners and under an armed guard. He was interrogated and tortured. Now somehow Selmish got to hear that Zvars was in the was in, was, 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 in the, uh, uh, was in the secret police offices. So he determined to get him out as well. And uh, there was a big problem. There were armed guards all the way throughout the building, and directly above where the corridor was, um, there was like permanent occupancy of some 160 soldiers. The Selmish decided to get Zvars out. And he did it with 12 men. They went to the uh, secret police offices, Eight men were posted out in the street. Two guards held up the entrance, and Selmish went other, uh, bluffed their way into the building, got up to the corridor, shot the guards, armed the other prisoners, some of the other prisoners, uh, released Vars, and then, got, and then shot their way out of the building. One of the things they always remembered about this episode was that as they break out, broke out into the street, Vars hadn't got a cat hat. He wasn't wearing a hat. And this was reflected because someone in the society at the time, every man wore a hat. So as they ran down the street, Zvaz is lunging out, trying to get a hat that will actually fit him, as they go. While the troops and police are sort of opening fire and coming after them. He engaged, he got out of the country for a bank raid in Pennsylvania. Uh, and apparently there was a reward of some $20,000 uh, being, being offered for him. In 1910, he returned once again to Riga and again was captured by the police, but they didn't know his real identity. He was, they called him both one of his aliases. And over a period of 11 days, he was tortured. And at the end of that time, he said his head felt so soft uh, because he'd been beaten so he had been beaten so badly. But he was broken. He didn't manage it, uh, and he was, he was terrified of being taken by the police again because he thought if taken again, he would confess. He would, he would, he would break, he would break, and this was the nightmare that was going to live with him. So he came to London, and uh, he came to London. His cousin was Jacob Peters, and uh, the first of those we saw, Queen Peters quarrelled with him uh, because uh, because Peters because uh, Vars now said he was an anarchist, and the two of them quarrelled, and they continued to see one another, but. Uh, uh, things were bad for them between them for a time. As well as, oops, under, uh, as well as uh, made a, a mistress of 19 year old Luba Mil, uh, uh, Milstein, and she moved to him with him to 59 Grove Street. And lots of people keep coming and going, but staying there is Peter the painter. And Zvar's best friend, Karl Hoffman, gunrunner in the 1905 revolution, wanted for 14 to 18 murders in Imperial Russia. Another visitor there was Yerka Duboff, who we've already seen. Um, this is Hoffman, and again, the, uh, this Hoffman on the right with a moustache, the figure in the centre, again, is Christian Salmus, the organiser of the uh, Tottenham outrage no longer wearing that wonderfully elaborate Cossack uh, uniform here. But here he is, as he appeared, sort of 1909, 1910. Now, 
key figure in their lives was uh, a man called Charles Perelman, who was their landlord. Yeah, he he owns a lodging house. And, uh, he was an elderly man, nearly 70, but he tried to look like a romantic rebel, a Byronic figure. He wore a large cloak and a big sort of hat, and uh, he, he, he got a big, beautiful beard. He also was also described as having uh, a beautiful voice and black eyes, big like a deer's. He sponged off wealthy Jews, and he was a, a womanizer, 70 years old, and quite brutal to his family. His wife was uh, 30 years younger than him, sort of a great favourite with, uh, 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 with the men. And their initial lodging house was in, in Great Garden Street. And so what you have is all this coming and going, backwards before Latvia, America, same group of people constantly lodging with Charles Perelman. And after Tottenham outrage, Salnish left as Vars moved in, and another lodger, again a key figure, the man on the right, this is Joseph. And he, he drags, he, he's got a bad, a deformed leg, he drags the leg behind him. And he was a watchmaker, worked for different jewellers. And uh, some of them were probably was robbed as a result of the information that he handed to, to the rest of the group. Now also, a great, uh, in the lodging house, was this woman, Nina Vasileva. Her name was probably false. Um, she was said to be the daughter of one of the Tsar's chefs. chefs. And she said that if she ever she was sent back to Russia, she would be hanged. What her crimes were, what her, I don't know. Um, we, we don't know. Um, just leaping ahead, she lived in this area, uh, lived in Brick Lane, until she died in 1963. Now, the other last, the last figure here is this man, Gardstein. George or Karl Gardstein, and Nina Vasileva became his mistress. And he was a sort of like a, a freelance Mr. Fixit. He, he, he would go around, he would travel abroad, and getting people of different political persuasions and beliefs to, to pull together in a common enterprise. He was a member of the Lisma, or Flame, group of anarchists, as were some of the others involved. And he was literally Mr. Fixit, an instructor for these fighting organizations. Others involved, I'm going to, uh, we shan't concentrate too much on them, but they did figure in the story. This man, John, Ro uh, John Rosen, and th th this man, John Rosen. Now, it was from Joseph, almost certainly, that the information came about Harris's jeweler's shop in Houndsditch. And the jeweler was supposed to have in his safe some £7,000 worth of jewellery belonging to Tsarist emigres. So this made it uh, sort of a doubly attractive target. And so the gang decided to break into Harris's jewellers uh, over the weekend of the 16th of December. Behind the jeweller's shop in Houndsditch was a small cul-de-sac called Exchange Buildings. And so they rented two houses in Exchange Buildings, and they moved in to these two houses. Nina Vasileva moved in there, and she was seen, uh, as were some of the others in these two houses. And so on the night of Friday the 16th of December, 1910, they began their break-in into uh, the jeweller's shop. 
what they were doing, they were breaking through the, the, the toilets in the backyards, they were breaking through the back wall into the shop to get at the jeweler's safe. This is a bird's eye view. Um, if you go on the front, you'll see this is exchange to the bottom line, this is the exchange buildings. You go over the roofs, and you can see on the roof in the top left hand corner, you'll see an H. That is Harris's the jeweler's shop. So that's where, they, that's where they're aiming for. And this was a, uh, a plan done of the break in. They, 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 they were going down at the bottom, you have, um, can you all see it? It's a sort of houses. Uh, the top picture of the, two, uh, the three houses, they had numbers 9 and 11. Number 10 was empty, so they'd gone into number 10 and they were breaking through the back wall. They got oxyacetylene cylinders, they got piping, all sorts of things to cut into the back of the safe. Because from this, looking in from Houndsditch, the safe was uh, stood under a light, and uh, which the passing policeman was all, so he could always look in the shop and see that the safe was okay. <laughs> they were actually going to break through the back wall behind the safe and cut the safe out for, 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 from the back. And uh, two teams were going in to uh, this break-in. The first team was going to be a guards team. This man, Max Smoller, Jürgen Dugoff and Jacob Peters. The second group, which makes sense, would include Fritz Vars, who was a locksmith, Joseph, who was crippled, and Osef Federov. Now, at this point, I'm going to put this, this one down for a Now, they started breaking in on the Friday night because, of course, it was the eve of the Jewish Sabbath. The gang calculated that the gang would, they would have some 36 hours to get uh, into the bank of, uh, of the safe. And they started breaking through the wall. Now, as the noise of their breaking through the wall was heard by a next door neighbour. Told the police, uh, the, the beat policeman, Constable Piper from Bishopsgate Police, uh, police Station. Now, Piper was a young probationer policeman and um, decided he would go round to exchange buildings and uh, knock and see, you know, see what, what was going on. Somebody was hammering or, or whatever. So he went round to uh, exchange buildings, knocked on the door number 11, and the door was open to him by guards then. <coughs> From his manner, Piper guessed that something was wrong. So he just said, is the, is the missus in? No, right, I'll, I'll call back later. And he went away. And he went back and, uh, again, all, no telephones or anything like that, and contacted uh, the uh, divisional station of Bishopgate and told them of his suspicion uh, and told them of the knocking. What he didn't tell them, because he was afraid of being made to look silly, being a young policeman, he didn't tell them that he'd actually gone to the house and spoken to anyone. So when a little group of policemen led by Sergeants Bentley and Tucker uh, and Bryant and uh, you know, when they went around to exchange buildings, they didn't know that anyone had been at the house. So Piper's left in the front of Houndsditch to watch the uh, front of the shop and <coughs> Bentley, Bryant, Sir Bentley, Sergeant Tucker, uh, Sergeant Bryant, Constables Woodhouse, Choate, and the detective, Constable, uh, Constable, two constables, Strongman and Martin. They all go around to exchange buildings in a little cluster. They think it's just somebody looking around. So, Bentley knocks on the door, number 11. Again, the door is open to him by, I believe, Darcy. 
So Mandy says, anyone working out the back? Can we have a look? So man says nothing. He just pushes the door partly to. And Bentley waits about half a minute before pushing open the door and stepping into the house. Now, there's no connecting door between the hall and the ground floor room, so you can see straight into the, in, 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 into the room. Cups and fire sources on the, on, the, on the table, fire burning in the grate. He's just standing there, sort of looking about. And suddenly he's aware of just a pair of feet, the bottom of his trousers at the top of the stairs. And Bendy, Bendy, uh, Bendy repeats his question. Anyone been working out the back? Um, can we can, can we can, can we have a look? And the man says, "In there." And as he does so, the back door thrown up was thrown open, and he walked. A man wrongly identified as Garstein, carrying in his hand a pistol, which he began to fire at Bentley. As he opens fire on Bentley, so does the person at the top of the stairs. And the shot fired from the top of the stairs went through the rim of Bentley's helmet, across his face, and through the shutter behind him. The other man, however, was now moving in very fast and firing just across the kitchen table. His first shot caught Bentley in the shoulder. The next went through his neck, severing his spinal cord. And Bentley dropped backwards over the doorstep, a dying man. Now, this is exchange buildings. The houses are uh, on the left here, where um, you can see the a lot of people. Down at the end is the street. They've got to get to that, and then they're going to turn right around towards, in, in a couple of street rounds towards Harrow, Harrow Place and over towards the east end. So this is, we're looking at the dead end of the cul-de-sac. There's only, only two lights in the street. There's a gas, there, there, there's a gas lamp at one end and one, and one at the other. So and there's a, but there's a high wind blowing that night. So the flares were right down. So what happens? Happens in almost total darkness because once the shooting started in number 11, the others came out of number nine as well. And caught the unarmed policeman outside, completely unawares. As Bentley fell backwards over the doorstep, Sergeant Brown put out his hands instinctively, as he said later, to ward off the flashes. He felt his left arm fall to his side, and then he fell into the street. Uh, when he came, to, he was propped up against the wall of one of the houses. He'd been shot once, through, uh, once in the arm and once in the chest. Sergeant Tucker, the oldest of the group, was hit twice. Once in the hip, once in the heart, he turned round, staggered a few paces, and dropped dead on his face. Constable Woodhams saw the flashes and ran towards them. He too drops unconscious when a mauser bullet shattered his, shatters his thigh bone. Constable Martin, plainclothes officer, as soon as the shooting starts, one of the door in number five exchange buildings opens, and young teenage girl. Bessie Jacobs appears in the doorway. Martin leaps into the doorway and kicks the door shut behind him. Says, throws his arm hand over Bessie, uh, Bessie Jacobs' mouth to stop her screaming and says, "Don't scream! I'm a police officer. I'll protect you." <coughs> Outside, there's only one policeman left on his feet, and this is Constable Cho. He's a big man, six foot four, and uh, he goes for Gardstein grabs hold of him and fights him for possession of his gun. And the rest of the gang, seeing what had happened, ran back to Garstein's assistance and turned their guns on choke. And the policeman was shot eight times. He was still holding on to Garstein when the last two bullets were fired into his back. And as he fell backwards, he dragged Garstein with him. And a shot fired at choke caught Garstein in the back. And he was dragged away by his gang 
a dying man. Betty Jacobs, when she sort of came out of the house and left the constable, but Martin said, don't say, don't say anything about uh, what had happened. She sees Constable Choke, amazingly, on his hands and knees, trying, still alive, and having been shot eight times, still trying to get to his feet. Uh, Sergeant uh, Bentley is still alive, he's taken to London Hospital. He dies the next morning, as does Constable Choke. Uh, the gang uh, had uh, gone out of the cul-de-sac and they were now dragging Garcy along between, behind them. And at this point, a, a, a witness who was to be who was ridiculed at the drama, he came running down through the street, hearing the shots, ran around the corner and ran straight into Peters and Dubon. Guns in their hands, uh, dragging Garcy along behind them, with Nina Vasileva behind, behind them too. And the two of them pointed at the Peterson Dubois, pointed their guns in Isaac Levy's face and said, don't follow. And he stood there and he said, he, he just went blind. Absolute fear, he went blind for a few seconds. Then he ran into the street. An interesting point at the subsequent trial was, uh, Dubois, the judge ruled that uh, Dubois and Peters, although they may have known of the murders, there was no evidence, they, they couldn't use the uncorroborated evidence of, of Isaac Levy as there was no evidence that they actually took part in the killings. Although, as I say, 30 yards behind them, there were three dead and dying policemen and two others had been crippled for life. This is Sergeant Bentley. Interestingly, this sort of a, in the mortuary, isn't it? And it has a sort of a, an echo here of uh, the photographs of Catherine Eddowes. There's a photograph about Catherine Eddowes in the mortuary, standing up against the wall, just as these were. And apparently the reason it was done is they couldn't depress the cameras. So they lifted the bodies up and stood them against the wall. In this instance, Bentley is sort of fastened to a stretcher. And it's not very clear here, but you can actually, uh, you can actually see uh, the bullet hole through, the, through his helmet. And this is Constable Choke, who was shot eight times. Um, many years later, I happened to know Francis Kemp doing quite well. And one day I turned up at his office in the... Uh, London Hospital, and he said, I've got something for you. And there was a big specimen bottle on the, uh, on his desk. Guess what that is? Three foot of Constable Choke's intestine. Look, there's the bullet holes through it. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's wonderful. That's really what I wanted to know. Uh, but if it, um, this was, this was this was Kemp's. Now, they dragged Gardstein over to number 59 Grove Street, Fritz Vars lodging. At one point he was screaming with pain. And they were going to dump him, but he, he, but he begged them to sort of keep, you know, keep pulling him on. And they dragged him over to Grove Street, and there they dumped him on the bed that you see there in Zavar's room that he shared with Nina Vasileva. Fritz Vars at this point goes almost into hysterics. He's terrified of what has happened. And he, Peter the painter, and the others who are waiting there, they all disappear. They all scatter to other lodgings and, uh, 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 and other places. And they leave uh, um, Garnstein with Luba Milstein and, and uh, uh, a friend of hers called Sarah Trudzowski. <coughs> 
she's a she really, she is the sad one of the some of the saddest characters in this story. She was Luba's friend. She'd come out of Russia about three years before. She was a hunchback, crippled, and she was going steadily insane. And what happened now sent her completely over the edge. Because Luba and she, Garstein was still alive, wanted a doctor. So they went to and uh, they tried to get a doctor, a Dr. Scanlon, who came and saw Garstein lying on the bed. Garstein said, shot from behind him, uh, accidentally shot by a friend. And uh, but Scanlon didn't want to say anything to the authorities because uh, the local people would immediately regard him as a police informer. And uh, so he, 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 he treated uh, Garcin as best he could, and uh, Garcin uh, got some money in my pocket, and Sarah took it out and gave it to Dr. Scanlon, who then went back to his house and hoped that the situation would resolve itself the next morning without involving him any further. Uh, Luba, uh, Fritz's instructions to Luba uh, were before he left that if anything, if Garcin dies, step out of the house. Burn it, destroy everything, destroy the evidence. Uh, but Luba is in hysterics and she goes running around, sort of flapping around, trying to find Fritz and trying to go to Carl Hoffman, the best friend. She's running around. So the person who nurses knew uh, Gardstein through the last few hours of his life is this sad little creature, Sarah Trudonsky. The landlord of 59 Grove Street, he's aware of what is happening, he goes up and he won't let Sarah leave. Uh, he's going to see. He's going to make a stay. He's going to make a stay there. So Sarah starts trying to destroy letters and photographs, and it was these, the bulk of which I recovered, and uh, they're now in the Guildhall Records Office. And this is what I recovered. What she was trying to destroy that night, and she, uh, Doctor Scanlon, tells, decides that he will tell the police. He, he uh, firstly tells his Inspector Wednesday. Wensley of the Yard, the Elephant, or the Weasel, the Weasel ben, or no, sort of Wenzel, is how it pronounces his name, who was a probationer in Whitechapel at the time uh, 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 of, of, of the Ripper murders. He was such a good policeman, such a detective, that uh, when he questioned after a period of years why he was never being transferred, why he never got promotion, it was, it, was, uh, it was told, well, on promotion you get moved to another division, but you're so good that we're going to keep you here and uh, stop you having the promotion. So he, he made a protest about this, and he was... Uh, uh, given the promotion, but allowed to stay in, in, in sort of uh, uh, in, in sort of Whitechapel, and uh, so he tells the police, and uh, they say, right, we'll sort of go around, we'll go around later. We, we won't sort of we'll wait, hold, a little holding action, see if anyone goes back. And then the next thing I know is Scanlon has not only told them, but he's gone to the press. He then notifies uh, Wednesday what he's done, and so. The police rush round to 59 Grove Street to see what can be done. The press are already, or, or, or just uh, about there. And in the bedroom, Gardstein is lying on the bed dead. Sarah is crouched by the fire, destroying uh, uh, letters and photographs very, very badly, very, very slowly. And uh, she is taken prisoner. She is the first of the prisoners. And on the bed, the dead Gardstein. Mortuary photograph, the one on the right, that is what was used in the wanted in in the in the, in the posters relating to this series, uh, the poster trying to identify who the, who this man was. Over the next three weeks, our other arrests. It's also during this period that the funeral takes place of the murdered policeman. They are literally given a state funeral at St Paul's Cathedral, and this is one of the photographs 
and here they are, the coffin being taken into St Paul's Cathedral, uh, where the three lie in state in, 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 the, in the cathedral. And watching this service, because they found the card in her handbag, uh, what it was Nina Vasileva, Garstein's mistress. Now, within that, within the, between the 16th of December and the 2nd of January, some five men and three women are arrested. Peters, Duzer, Dubon, Federoff, uh, Nina, and eventually Nina Vasileva, and Luba Milstein, they're all, they're all arrested. And then on the night of the 2nd of January, 1911, the police receive information that two of the gang, Fritz Vars and Joseph, are hiding in an attic at 100 Sydney Street. I was able to find out the name of the informer. The informer was their old landlord, Charles Perelman. Perelman. And I got this many years later, I actually got this information from his son. And uh, sorry, indirectly, but nonetheless from, from his son, who suddenly was able to explain the sudden amount of money that came into the family. Uh, after the siege of Sydney Street. And so, down in Sydney Street, the uh, area was cordoned off. Number 100 Sydney Street was emptied of all the occupants except for the two gunmen in the attic. The attic was also believed to be the gang's armory. And then, in the morning, Detective Sergeant Leeson stepped into the roadway and called on the two men to surrender. But we have an answer. Leeson was shot through the chest and the siege of Sydney Street had begun. I should add, by the way, Leeson's Lost London is perhaps one of the most unreliable documented documents ever to use in connection with either Sydney Street or Jack the Ripper or indeed of anything else. <laughs> when you get a chance, as I did, to compare his statements, what he said about Sydney Street and what he said about what was actually said in his official statement, with the two widely diverging things. Let's say, Lost London is one of the most untrustworthy publications you can possibly find. Now this was the first time the British police had come up against the armed gunmen like this, apart from Tottenham. And so they were hastily and badly armed with shotguns with a maximum range of not more than 30 yards. The gunmen were armed with Mausers, which were sighted up to a thousand yards. Um, they also had Browning and unlimited supply of ammunition. And so it was for this reason that the police were so badly armed that a telephone call was put through to Churchill, who was Home Secretary responsible for the police. And Churchill later recalled how he got out of the bathtub and came dripping wet to the telephone to take this message and give permission for Scots guards to be brought up from the Tower of London to return the gunman's fire. The Scots guards turned up in force. They even brought a field gun with which to shell the house. <laughs> I was going to put the, the video on it a bit later. I'll leave the Sydney Street video later on. Uh, there was a gun battle lasting nearly seven hours, and during that time, as you'll see from the video, I'll put on at the end, just a few minutes, the whole of the East End came to see this gun battle taking place, which is one of the reasons why it has such a legendary status. Here are the policemen. Remember, this is the 3rd of January 1911. It's wet, it's been sort of raining, and the policemen are lying uh, on these sort of uh, sacks or covers, pointing their rifles down the street of the house. I should add that not one of them could have actually fired on the house. The shots are, it's absolutely impossible to fire at the house from this angle. Um, the only shots you could get on the house were directly front and back. You certainly could have to get at it from, from, from these other angles. And here again is a, the postcards down here, the soldiers, all looking, all looking, looking very, very dramatic. Um, all of these end of the case, they can see this gun battle taking place. Now Churchill, 
curiosity overcame him and he, he regretted it later. But he decided to come down and see what was happening. And so here he is. Uh, we can just turn to the right of the fireman's shoulder. You can just see part of his top hat and his profile. And as he came through the crowds, um, the crowd shouted with reference to the immigrants, Who let them in? <laughs> <laughs> and the famous photograph was taken. There is Churchill, the front of that group, standing in the gateway of Sydney Street, gazing down at the street at the siege. And the gun battle went on for nearly seven hours. Then just before two o'clock in the afternoon, there was an explosion in the attic on the house caught fire. And the flames began to burn their way down, down through the house, forcing the two gunmen to retreat before the flames. Now, contrary to the, the movie, The Siege of Sydney Street, um, there was no chance of getting access into the houses on either side. The other thing about 100s in that particular terrace was that they were constructed of asbestos. They were, they, they were fire constructed. So the fire only stayed within the house. It didn't spread to the houses on either side in which, in those two houses, there were armed policemen in every room from the attic to the ground floor in case the gunmen did try to break through. So all the so the gunmen were firing just front and back uh, uh, of the house. So the flames burned their way down through the house, forcing the gunmen to retreat before the flames. And when the flames reached the first floor, watchers in one of the house's offices saw as the flames lifted the bedroom curtains, they saw one of the gunmen Joseph, lying on a bed, obviously dead. But Fritz Vars was still very much alive. And he kept firing out at the police and the soldiers. There's the house on fire. He kept firing out at the police and soldiers until the flames reached the ground floor. When rather than surrender, he sat down in the kitchen. Oh, sorry. Did you just... Uh, oh, I can't go back on this. Um, he sat down in the kitchen at the back of the house and suffocated to death in the smoke rather than surrender. <coughs> so ended the siege of Sydney Street. The firemen rushed forward, put out the fire, and there was another casualty. The station, one of the part of the wall, part of the wall collapsed, uh, wounding and subsequently killing, injuring and subsequently killing the, the station officer. So he was the third casualty of Sydney Street. And inside, in the charred remains of one in the kitchen of 100 Sydney Street, they they found the headless, uh, sorry, they found part, uh, almost headless body and charred remains of Fritz Mars. His hands, when they found it, the charred arms, stumps sticking, the arms sticking up through the ashes. But enough of the head was left to show that he'd actually suffocated in the smoke. The, we then go, following on from the siege, the lull, Sergeant Bentley's wife was had been pregnant. Uh, the shock of the killing Rosalind brought on the birth, and this was uh, uh, this is the christening of uh, baby Bentley, um, who lived only three years. And when he died uh, three, in 1914, he was buried with he was buried in the same grave as his father. Uh, there was also the increase on the two men, on Fritz Vars and Joseph. One of those who was compelled to give evidence, regarding of evidence, was the Home Secretary, Winston Churchill, who took an awful amount of stick from the press over, over being there. They knew why the police were there, but, but why was Winston Churchill there? Was there? As he, I mean, subsequently, he admitted sheer curiosity. But of course, he was in the embarrassing position of being Home Secretary. Once he got there, 
he suddenly realised that, that he was the senior person present and therefore effectively in charge uh, in, in charge of in charge of the siege. Now, when he, you then have the committal hearings, the magistrates' court hearings. There are photographs of those. Uh, standing up is um, John, uh, John, Ro John, John Rosen. Sitting at the front, that is Sarah, the one that fronts Sarah Trojonski. And if you look behind her, at one o'clock behind her head, you can see hands to his mouth is Jacob Peters. Is Jacob Peters. This is the magistrate's court hearing. Here again is another shot of the court hearing. To the uh, left, that is Nina Vasileva, and to the right, Sarah Trojonski. Sarah Trojonski, as I say, she'd been left with Gardstein's body to destroy the evidence. And that, and worrying about it, by the time she was taken to the police station, she was already uh, well over the edge. And the, the whole effect of this was to send her completely insane. And she was committed from the court to Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum, uh, which is where she died, completely insane, and that is where she died 20 years later. We then go uh, to the trial, the old baby. Well, I should say, sort of, at the magistrate's court, various people were being released. Carl Hoffman, Luba Milstein, and um, uh, the various of the prisoners being released. And the amazing thing is, once they're released and they're no longer in, 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 uh, at risk of being rearrested, they all begin changing their stories. And, uh, uh, and various, various prisoners being released. The witness Isaac Levy, he's in, 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 he's, he's ha he is hassled, he's uh, um, uh, given the really, given the really his, his evidence has continued, evidence that he's seen do what the leaders are in But the biggest help to the defence was the judge. 70 years old, Mr. Justice Granville, completely incompetent. He was known as a bungler on the bench. And quite early on in the trial, he amazed the court and elated the defence by saying, that clearly the murderers had already met their doom. And he named Gardstein, Zazdazvaz, and Joseph as the murderers, which of course immediately left, got off the hook, Peters and Luloff, and, Vas and, Vas and, and, Vas and almost Vasileva. He went on to rule that charges of conspiracy to commit murder could be preferred against the rest of the group. And the prosecution was ultimately forced to reduce the charges to conspiracy to break and enter. And even then, there was insufficient evidence to secure a conviction. The defence, of course, resolutely shifted all the guilt onto the three dead men and onto Max Smoller, who had escaped abroad, as had Peter the Painter. Those released gave new evidence on this change of uh, direction, and eventually everyone was acquitted, with the exception of Nina Vasileva, because of a, a, a bottle found with her fingerprints on it in number of exchange buildings. Mr. Justice Grantham sentenced her to two years in prison, but he misdirected the jury. And five weeks later, she was arrested on appeal. Um, so everyone, literally, everyone was released. Mr. Grant Justice Grantham was a souvenir hunter, and he asked for one of the mouses that had been taken in a lovely condition from under one of the bodies, under Fritz's body, at uh, uh, 100 Sydney Street. When I was running the museum, a letter was written by the family 
the 1950s, saying that they would, that this uh, would eventually come with the rest of the, with the other guns from the collection, the other exhibits, to the City of London Police Museum. Somebody didn't pass on the message in the family. Finally, sad little figure, Jacob Peters' English daughter, May Peters. He had an English wife and a Russian. He had an English wife and an English daughter, May, who followed him to Russia around two years after the revolution. Only to discover that he, Peters had divorced them. We have an English wife, and they've now got a Russian wife and Russian son. He wouldn't let them return to England simply because of who they were. And eventually the right English wife died there. May Peters always retained her nationality. And there were many attempts over uh, several, uh, several decades to try and get her back to England. But the Russians, even after uh, the Jacob Peters had been shot, would never let her go simply because of who she was. The Russians, the secret Russian secret police waited 10 years before striking, after, after Peter's death, before striking and his English daughter and his Russian son. Both of them were arrested, thrown into prison. Jacob Peters, you will remember, in 1905 had been tortured by the Akrana, had his fingernails torn out. In 1948, the secret police, which he'd helped to create uh, after the revolution, they did the same thing to his son, his Russian son. Even after the release from the camps, May Peters, the Russians would never let May Peters go. And when, especially when she knew she was dying, that she asked that her ashes should be sent back to the family grave in North London, to be buried there. They never arrived. The official Russian explanation was that they had been sent, but had been lost in the post. So two entirely different endings for the children of this revolution. And that, ladies and gentlemen, apart from the video, is the siege of Sydney's Church. And that was Donald Rumbelow at the October 1999 meeting of the Cloak and Dagger Club. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast.